I was delighted when I got a phone call. I was only saying to Nigel, you've met Nigel, I think most of you, the regional minister uh, from the uh, uh, Southwest Baptist Association. I was only saying to him the other day, well, at the moment, I've got a few gaps for preaching. There's a good few churches that have remembered that I've just started, so I'm beginning to get booked up, but it's not too bad. If there's any churches that you need me to go to at the moment, Nigel, you let me know, because... And about two days later, I got contacted to say, well, actually, five head have asked. <laughs> Brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. It's great. It is great to be here and to be given this particular passage to look at today. James is a wonderful book. You know, in, in Scripture, we've got all kinds of material and all kinds of books. And, and I think some books are deeply nuanced and uh, and. and and, and poetic and, and, and subtle. And, and then there's the book of James, um, uh, which, which is less so, shall we say. It's kind of an awful lot more as it reads. It, it, it's designed to pull no punches. James is not mucking about when he writes this particular book. And, and actually, the people who received it will, I think, have certainly felt a sense of challenge but hopefully a sense of godly direction when they received it at first. Uh, Before we get into it, next slide please. Um, When we open the word of God I guess there's different ways that we can approach it. I'm not suggesting any is wrong. You know if you're looking for history through the ages well you'll find that in scripture but that's not why scripture was given to us. The word of God was not given to us as, as a history book. What you'll find when you look through scripture are all kinds of laws and commandments that are helpful for life. But that's not the point of scripture either. Actually, scripture wasn't given to us as as a rule book. When I was at college, my favourite lecturer, who I'm pleased to say is now my spiritual director. He's retired from college, um, uh, um, but he's he's around the area. Thankfully, it's good to have him. And my guess would be, he was a a popular lecturer, the thing, the phrase that everyone will remember from his lectures from 20-odd years at college will be what you'll see on the screen. When it comes to God's word, there are two questions that we need to ask. Number one, thank you, what kind of God? Because the word of God was given to us so that we could see what God was like. The word of God is God revealing himself to human beings. That's why it was given to us. That God Almighty, God who is cosmic, God who is vast, God who is beyond understanding, because of his great love for us, wanted us to get to know him. Scripture is God revealing himself to us. So the first question to ask when we look at scripture is, what kind of God is being revealed in this particular passage, in this that we're reading? What kind of God? It's not the only reason, though, because there's a second part. Next one, please. So what? What kind of God is revealed to us? So what difference does that make to my life, to our lives as his church, to the lives of this world in which we live, to the lives of our eternal future. What kind of God, so what? They're the two questions that I encourage, I'm encouraging them to watch it for quite a number of years, I encourage you as well. What kind of God, so what? They're the questions that keep coming back to time and time and time and time again. Look, if you want to have it in a technical way, we've got doctrine and ethics. 
what kind of God is doctrine? And ethics is, so what difference does it make to my life? Yeah? Well, this particular lecturer was a doctrine and ethics lecturer who decided to actually keep the two together and not separate them. Interesting decision. Not a lot do that, but he did that on purpose because actually they are intimately linked. The reason I'm telling you that, well, because actually it's a fairly big part of the passage that we're about to look at today. It's big on doctrine, it's also big on ethics, and it's big on the link between the two. This passage, probably more than others, it becomes really obvious that that's the case. The first part of the passage that was read to us, thanks for reading the passage to us, guys, it was marvellous. And I, I love the fact we can read a proper chunk, a whole chapter of scripture together and allow God to speak to it. Now, now of course, the chapter divisions, both in terms of the actual chapters, the verses, and the subdivisions within the chapters were put in after scripture was first written, but they are helpful. And certainly, this particular passage divides two, the, the, the chapter into two parts. But of course, they are intimately linked. The first part, the first part is all about, all about equality. It's all about favoritism that was creeping into the church that James was writing to at this particular point in time. Effectively, an inequality between those that have and those that have not. And you can argue that that's the same in the world today. But Let's just set the scene a little bit. Because, you see, I think when we talk about this in our culture today, in our social context, particularly in the UK, uniquely, in fact, actually, we can not understand quite what the division was. Because, you see, in the UK, we have healthcare free at the point of access. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. You have healthcare. When you're sick, you can go and see a doctor. That's pretty unique in this whole world today, let alone in history. Um, When you have not got a job, there is some provision made for you so so that you don't starve to death. It's frowned upon if, just because you have not, you're ostracized from society. This is our culture. There is very few, arguably no one, in the UK culture, that when compared with the first century would be considered the poor. Because of all that we have access to that they didn't. I am not saying that there aren't poor people in this country. There are certainly people who are struggling in this nation. One of the things that we did at Watch It was to set up um, alongside our food bank an employment hub to try and support people through the often dehumanising process of being on benefits and then trying to find a job. There are poor people in this country, but in comparison to the first century, well, there is no comparison. The church that James was writing to, you are either wealthy or you were completely destitute. Social mobility, that concept so loved of the Western world, right, wasn't even thought of in the first century. There was no opportunity to move between social groupings. You were either rich, and that was the way it stayed, or you were poor, and that's the way that it stayed. When James writes to this group, he writes to generally a bunch of people that were rich, that were the haves, who clearly 
were looking down, possibly excluding the have-nots. There was favoritism, big time, going on in the church. Of course, it was a big ask, wasn't it, for that particular culture. To be a Christian in that particular culture meant going in the exact opposite way to the way that society appeared to be going. The social divisions that were so ingrained in that particular culture, James is saying to them, look, you really have got to deal with this. Because the God of heaven, he loves the poor. He favours those have-nots, if there is favouritism at all. So, so what are you doing? What he's not criticising is wealth. What he's criticising is a lack of care for those who were different. What kind of God is the God of equality? So what? Well, so what does that mean to you? You answer that question in these coming days and weeks ahead. Okay. That was the first section, and it sets the scene. It ends with this kind of well-known kind of known phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It kind of appears on plaques, on walls, sometimes on churches. It's not quite a car sticker, I don't think, but, you know, it's that type of thing. Um, it appears all over the place. It appears sometimes with great fanfare and triumph. Well, look, let's read it within the context. By, by mercy triumphing over judgment, what, what that is saying is, is look, you need, you need to be looking out for those that are poorest in this particular world, not just favouring those like yourselves who are rich. And then it moves on to what is the second section of this particular chapter. Now, this is possibly, you're studying James and working your way through it, I think, over the coming weeks. Am I right in saying that? Possibly this particular section is the most spoken of and talked of section in the whole book of James. In some ways, in some ways it's a pity because the whole book of James is just outstanding. And, and each particular bit speaks to us through one theme but in different ways. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. The reason that this particular passage is spoken about so much is because it's a challenge to our Protestant faith big time. If we're wanting to put it in words, it's are we justified by faith or by works? Because you see, everything, everything that we've heard, and particularly as we've read through Paul, and it's been interpreted through the eyes of our Protestant history and tradition, everything we've read is that we are justified through faith, by faith alone. The doctrine of justification, of how we are made right with God, how God sees us as righteous before him, the justification bit, well, that is not through what we do. It's by faith, through God's grace, that we are saved. That is all that we have heard. Then James comes along. Let me illustrate this a little bit with just a couple of verses. Next slide, please. So James comes along and blasts us with a verse like this which rather puts a spanner in the works of that that I've just said. You see that a person is justified, or or made righteous, if you've got a newer version of the NIV, is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Hang on a second. That doesn't seem to sit 
quite easy, particularly because some of you are going to quote to me the next one, please, from Romans chapter 3, where Paul quite clearly says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. It's by faith, surely. And of course, our Christian tradition really backs that up. Next slide, please. Here is a wonderful picture of the young Martin Luther hammering to the church in the centre of Wittenberg in Germany, the 95 Theses. They didn't look quite like this. I don't think it was beautiful text art. But basically, this whole idea of sola fide, faith alone, is central to these 95 Theses. It's not what you do. You can't buy your way into salvation. You can't be made righteous in God's eyes and be saved because you buy it in terms of indulgences, as was the case then, or because of things that you do. It's purely because of what Jesus has done for you, and therefore that faith in Jesus that causes you to be saved. This is the root of who you are. Everything you have heard, if you've grown up in a Protestant church, has reflected that. It certainly has in mine. Pretty much everything. And it's been repeated and ground in. And it's who we are. And is it wrong? Because it would appear that James wants to challenge that a little bit. So actually, what's going on? Martin Luther, famously, not so long after this episode, denounced the entire book of James. It, 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 was, it was the done thing around the time of the Reformation to get a bee in your bonnet about various books in the Bible and decide that they ought to be removed from the canon. Um, and, and Martin Luther would have gone with James. Others would have had gone with Esther because he didn't mention God. Various other books of the Bible were criticised because of things that they said. Martin Luther was big on Paul. Any Pauline text, he was big on Paul. John Calvin after him. All these um, fathers of the Protestant tradition, this was the doctrine that they wanted reinforced time and time and time again. By grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. This was it. Next slide, please. So, who is right? Is it James? Or is it Paul? Well, arguably, arguably, of course, who cares? What, what does Jesus say, actually? Really ought to be what we're thinking, yeah? Um, uh, not kind of between this discussion between James and Paul. Some of the scholars that wrote about this until quite recently decided that actually James wrote the entire book because he had it in for Paul, basically. So the point of the book was to basically stick the foot in to all Pauline text, having read it, and so that was partly why he wrote something that seemed so opposing and so abrasive. I think that's a little bit rubbish, if I'm honest. But, but that's certainly what was said. What's Jesus say? on matters of this. Let's just look at a couple of things. Next one, please. Well, Jesus said in the book of Luke, each tree is recognised by its own fruit. So, what's produced, what someone produces, arguably what they do, their deeds, yeah, reflects who they are. That's what Jesus said. And then, of course, in one of the most famous passages in the whole of Scripture, 
in Matthew 25. And Jesus says, many will say, Lord, when did you see? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He'll reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You seem to hear these words chiming back through in what James is writing at this particular point. Do you agree? But you see, here's the thing. I think, I think that this has caused Protestants too much trouble. I think, basically, we need to, as my daughter would say, or she'd say if she heard me say no, or Dad, we need to chill out a little bit. We, we basically need to get a bit of perspective on this whole thing. Is this a false dichotomy that has been set in place? Is there actually something that is going on between James and Paul? Is it that they're saying the opposite things? Are we saved through faith and by faith, or are we saved through deeds and by the deeds that we do? Look, I think people are interpreting it in far too narrow a way. I think what they're trying to do is almost proof text two particular biblical writers against each other and potentially you can pull the words of Jesus out in any which direction to try and justify their opinion. And I'm not entirely sure, A, it's helpful, and I'm not entirely sure, B, it's right. Look, if you read the whole of Paul's text, you'll also come across verses like this next one, please, if that one can go up. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul also wrote that. Paul also, in his life, demonstrated that. So actually, actually, I'm not sure that there's an awful lot of difference here. Faith or deeds? Is that really what we need to be thinking about when we read James chapter 2? I think more what we need to be thinking about is faith alive or dead. Maybe that's more helpful if we're looking for an either side of the seesaw kind of contrast when it comes to this passage. It seems to fit in. Not necessarily that deeds will get you into heaven, which, of course, sends the heebie-jeebies down the spine of every Protestant the world over. Okay, That's, That's not what is being suggested in this particular passage. Faith in Christ alone, that's what justifies you. So what? So what does that look like? Ethics. So what does that look like? That is what James is trying to get at here. Interestingly, later in life, 
Martin Luther then comes out and says this. For we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves us is never alone. So even those that are potentially trying to use the father of Protestantism against this deeds business, even he recognises that actually it is about faith. We're justified through faith in Jesus. We can't do things to earn our salvation. But that that is not on its own. What we can't do is say to our neighbour who is in need, go, I wish you well. God bless you. I was talking the other day to some people. I'm from a charismatic background. My, my kind of heritage has been in the, part of it at least has been in the charismatic church. So you'll understand that actually I'm not down on the charismatic church in any way, shape or form. We were having a discussion about the fact that in certain quarters of the church, there'll be a need made known, either locally or abroad. And that's dealt with how? Well, we'll sing over you, was the phrase that we were talking about. We'll sing over you. We'll get together and we'll, we'll sing over you. Well, if I'm honest with you, if that's it, if that's all, then that's like what we've just been reading in James. Yeah? God bless you. Go on your way. Now, I can also tell you, in defence of my old tradition, that that really was it. And actually, they did sing, but they also went and gave, and it did look like something as well. Possibly, the way we look at this is what kind of faith? Alive or dead? Next one, please. In verse 17... We read this. Faith by itself is not faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Is your faith, your saving faith, the faith that justifies you in the eyes of God, is this something which is alive, or is it something that is dead? James says, having kind of made it clear already what he thinks, like I say, he doesn't really pull any punches. Like I say, he normally says it like it is. He says, do you need some examples then? Do you need some ideas of what I'm on about? Next picture, please. Take a little look then at Father Abraham. Have a little look at what is going on there. Because, and it says this in verse 23, in verse 20, You foolish people, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Made righteous in the eyes of God, declared righteous in the eyes of God... Because of his faith linked with his actions. His faith made a difference to how he lived his lives. So what he didn't do was to hear God speak to him. And then say, you know God, theoretically I'd be prepared to take a dagger to my boy. That happened. 
And that particular image shocks me to the core because it just seems really like some of the little boys that I know. So, so he, his actions, his actions were not some kind of theoretical thing. They were actual. His faith was such that the dagger was raised and he still, he still knew that God would provide the sacrifice. That's how far it went for Abraham in terms of his faith put into action. The life of his son, literally, under the point of his knife. James is saying, well, look, that kind of faith, not just theoretical or spoken, but that kind of faith, accompanied by that kind of action, that is what God's looking for. He mentions Rahab, next picture as well. This wonderful, slightly mysterious character in um, the Old Testament that makes it to the lineage of Jesus, if you read the first part of the book of Matthew. This prostitute that, that helped out the two spies, Hebrew spies, and helped them to escape in a way that they didn't get caught. Hid them and helped them to escape. It wasn't just a, oh well, if that were to kind of happen, I probably would do that in terms of a conceptual thing. It looked like something active. It was something which could well have got her killed. As it happened, she was the only one that was saved because of what she did. But that is the kind of faith that is accompanied by action that God is looking for. If James wants to press the point anymore, and he really does press this point, and he presses it through the book, not just, not just in this particular section, then the last verse of this chapter, next slide please, effectively sums it up. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James is saying, look, when spirit is without the body, the whole thing is dead. Well, it's as, as close a union when it comes to faith and action. One without the other can't live. One without the other is as useless. One without the other rots. Again, one of the things I've been encouraging the guys from Watch It to do is to, to read back over these. I hope you do. Read back and allow God to speak to you himself by his spirit through this passage, um, through the week. Read it in different versions, though. Uh, for those of you that have got kind of uh, one of these or one of those or whatever, you can flick between the different versions. You know, Every one of them has got 17 different versions of the Bible in these days. Uh, flick between them and read the passage in different versions. It makes for interesting reading. Eugene Peterson, who writes the message, puts this passage, as you can well imagine, in some fairly upfront, slightly fruity language. Right? When it gets to this particular bit, he describes a dead, rotting corpse. It's like a corpse. It's not just dead, it's like a corpse, is the phrase, the word that he uses. It's stinky. 
kind of poisonous to others. It's not great. We don't want to think about it too much. It's horrible. Well, that's like faith without deeds, is what James is saying. Thank you. Next one. I'd love to be here for the rest of this series, because what a great book you're studying. It is about sacrifice. This book is about sacrifice to God. It's not saying that justification comes through deeds. All right? It's saying that just the expression of faith alone is not actually what God's looking for in seeing you as righteous. It's saying that that needs to express itself in something, and it ought to, it ought to naturally as an outflow of that faith in God. Faith in action is what James is saying. Last one, and then we're closing. Next, please. What kind of God? The God, I think, that this passage describes is the most wonderful, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father. Right? Because, because any other God in history, pretty much, the more you give of your money and of everything, not, not voluntarily or as a natural response, but because of a sense of duty or guilt, right? the more you give, the more you get back. This is not the God that we're seeing in this passage. This is a God of grace in whom we have faith. But because of that faith, this is the God that expects and recognises his people by their actions, by what are their priorities in this life by the type of things they do with their money, by the ways they vote, by the things they live for, by where their treasure is. Yeah. That, that's the God who we see. What kind of God? That kind of God. Next one. So what? Well, the so what question is up to you. So What? Not out of guilt, not because of compulsion, but because of your faith in Christ alone. Consider how God would have you live, again, this week. Consider what your priorities are. Consider where your money goes. Consider where the X in the voting box goes. Consider all of those things through God's eyes in recognition of that which we've just read in chapter 2 of the book of James. And think, okay, if this doctrine is going to relate to the ethics of my life, if righteousness and being saved in the eyes of God is going to look like something in this world, for me, what's that thing? What's that look like?